We are going to energize the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. The independence case is a powerful one. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Grant Hurst, who is better known to audiences on YouTube as the Casual Historian. Welcome to the podcast, Grant. Oh, it's great to be here, Will. It's great to uh, great to have you on, Grant, and uh, great to speak to you. Um, the first question that I'd like to ask is, what made you decide to start your YouTube channel in the first place? And, and what was it that got you into uh, making YouTube videos? Hmm. Uh, well... The story goes back now nearly a decade. I was in community college and I had originally gone there to become a teacher, like a regular public school K through 12 teacher here in the US. Mm -hmm. But as I took some uh, education classes, classes on you need to take to become a teacher, I learned that I did not like everything else involved in becoming a teacher. All the stuff that all the non-teaching parts. Mm. It's around that same time, I remember seeing a video on YouTube from CGP Gray. He had this video called Digital Aristotle. Posed this idea of education in the future might be driven more by video and be it algorithms, however they developed would fit people with like the right subject they need at that moment. Things haven't exactly developed the way he thought it would in that video. But that's more or less what started down my path of maybe I should do something online. And then, of course, that in tandem with Crash Course, which premiered at around the same time period, around 2012. But it wasn't until about 2015 that I actually took the dive of making actual educational videos. So, I, I mean, you, you, you mentioned um, some interesting things there, including the idea of video being used as an educational tool. I, I mean, how, how important do you think it is um, in this sort of technological age that we live in, in an age in which uh, perhaps attention spans aren't the, the, the same length mm -hmm. as, as some people like, like to say, mm -hmm. as, 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 as they used to be, that there is an ability for people to be able to watch informative, well-constructed um, historical analysis at the click of their fingers without having to go and search for um, books which might take a a bit longer to find mm -hmm. than, than just going on YouTube and, and searching for a particular topic. Well, uh, as far as I see it, it's not much different than say in the past where on a television where you had used to have history programming mm -hmm. on various networks. And the only difference with YouTube is that you can find the stuff you're interested in right now, rather than the umpteenth world war two documentary. <laughs> yeah, of course. And, um, what I think is also interesting about, um, the videos that you make and, and the videos that other people um, in the same sort of history community uh, as you make is that you don't just focus on American history, you look at history um, around the world. Is that something that you think is particularly important when you're making historical content to make it not as necessarily uh, nationalistic or mm -hmm. um, as uh, overtly, you know, just focused on mm -hmm. one topic? I mean, you say that the um, you know, history channels used to, and they still do make a lot of documentaries mm -hmm. just about the Second World War rather than about mm -hmm. other conflicts as well. Yeah. So on my part, it's not a conscious effort on my part to make videos that are about more than just the United States. It just so happens I follow whatever I tend to be interested in at mm -hmm. the moment. 
And over the last few years, I've been more interested in like uh, international relations. And in particular, like here's a behind the scenes thing of why I've been doing a lot of the topics I have been, is I've been doing a lot of 20th century stuff. And the reason for that is because there's a lot more material to work with, mm. videos, pictures, like if you're using GeoLayers, which mm. is a plugin for After Effects, it's super useful for 20th century to the present. Anything before, it's not super useful, but it's, you know, it's, it's really good. It makes them, that's what I use to make all the map animations I've been making for about a year now. And so that's part of the reason why is this just, it's easier in terms of like material because you have to try and, because mm. this is a video. I can't, if I, I, I can do this as a podcast if I wanted to, but I wanted to do it as a video and you need some kind of visual illustration. And 20th century topics are a lot easier to do that with. Yeah, of course. Um, and, and also um, as well, uh, it's something that I think is easier for someone who perhaps is not as involved in history, maybe is just beginning to become interested in mm -hmm. history to be able to relate to something that's a lot closer in, in time to them, isn't it? Than say something that happened thousands and thousands of, of years ago, which might be much more remote to them and they might not be able to connect to as easily. Yes, there's a there's an old saying among uh, in the history world that is, you know, that the past is a different country. It's it is that different. Even the past of your own country is a a very different country. Just a century ago, you might not be able to understand everything people are saying. Mm. Yeah, of course. Um, I'd like to turn now to something that you've covered um, a little bit in a couple of different videos, and that's the use of history in terms of propaganda and the use of history um, mm -hmm. by politicians in ways that are not, you know, entirely uh, <laughs> accurate. Mm -hmm. What do you think it is about particular historical subjects? I mean, we saw it in the past few years with um, President Trump, with his constant need to invoke Abraham Lincoln, for example, N not in the most mm -hmm. sophisticated or necessarily analytical um, well, and it's the same with politicians throughout mm -hmm. history. What do you think it is about particular topics that attract politicians and make them want to use, to pluck individuals or events out of history and use them in a, a modern context in an attempt to, mm -hmm. um, you know, speak to their, their audiences? What, what, what do you think that's about? Well, a big part of, of it, of course, has to do with the reverence that we have for certain historical figures. You know, in the United States, obviously, Abraham Lincoln is heavily associated with the abolition of slavery and overall the fight against racism and racial inequality. And so something that the modern Republican Party has, like, has a really hard time with is the fact that a lot of people accusing them of being racist. And once again, you can go, you can argue around in circles about mm -hmm. why that is or isn't the case. But the, but the fact that Abraham Lincoln was a Republican and the first Republican president is something that they like to hold as kind of this old, as like this get out of jail free card. Hmm. And that's at least in that particular context. And I think that's, that's why it's like, if Abraham Lincoln wasn't seen as a good president, no, nobody would be invoking him. You, know, you don't see very many yeah. people invoking Andrew Johnson and not <laughs> nearly as many anymore invoking like Andrew Jackson, you know, hmm. it all has to do with how we, how we publicly revere certain figures. Mm. And to what degree do you think that that's perhaps um, changing in, in terms of the way that we perceive particular presidents and, and, and world leaders in general? Because of mm -hmm. course, in terms of access to information, 
hundreds of years ago access to information about the reasons that decisions were made and particular um, the, the impact of those decisions was much more limited than it is now and we are through um, the internet and, and greater access to archives able to have a much more nuanced vision of politicians and um, you know leaders in, in, in all spheres of life. Do you think that that means that we're going to have less of that kind of reference going forward because we're not going to have perhaps uh, as, as much of a, a skewed image as sometimes was presented in the past? I find it difficult to say in large part because like a lot of information, especially about more recent world leaders, tends to be hidden behind various laws of uh, confidentiality. Mm. You know, they, they for various reasons, national security or what have mm. you, they can't reveal everything that comes out. So there tends to be a lot of classified information. And so there tends to, it tends to come in a bit more of a wave, depending on, you know, like if a president or a national leader was like viewed positively in their lifetime, chances are that reputation is going to become more negative over time as more information is let out. Mm. Whereas if a leader was viewed more negatively in their time, chances are stuff information will come out that will probably make them look a little better, if not good. And so I think that's the general trend. And so, so long as governments feel the need to classify information that is, has to do with recent events, I don't think we're going to see too much change in how the reverence for historical figures, at least not past a certain point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the things that I find um, interesting in that as well is, as, as you mentioned there, the changing fortunes of particular leaders, and you, you've seen it with um, figures like LBJ, Lincoln Bain Johnson, mm-hmm. and Woodrow Wilson in terms of the way that um, they're represented in, in history and the way that historians look at them. What do you think it is that allows for a certain... Um, change in opinion about particular figures? Do you think it is simply that um, as time passes, more information is released about them, so we get more of a complete picture? Or do you think that it's perhaps equally or, or, or maybe more so that as time passes, there's a greater emotional distance between the particular figure and the public and, and, and historians in general? For example, with LBJ, obviously a, a lot of uh, negative feeling towards him was directed to his um, policies around Vietnam and the Vietnam War. But obviously, as, as, as time passes, there's perhaps a, a cooling of the intensity of feeling that was felt towards him whilst the conflict was still ongoing. Yeah, I definitely think it's more the latter. Like, as a historian, I wish it was because we got more information. <laughs> but of course, times change, people change, cultures change. And so people view things differently. You know, people weren't mm-hmm. caring as much about Woodrow Wilson premiering Birth of a Nation at the White House mm-hmm. until, you know, as I noted in my video, until America had its first black president. That fact was known the entire time, but no one really cared. So it's not even that new information has to be revealed. It's that people have to care about particular pieces of information that were already there. Mm-hmm. And that's when I think culture and politics can play a much bigger role, especially I know in the United States, it's that politics sort of like leads, almost leads like academia in the way they go. It's like mm. 
something is happening in politics, and then the academics try to respond to what's happening by reinterpreting the past mm -hmm. through whatever the lens is of the present. Yeah. And how much then do you think um, political culture is tied into um, popular culture and, and tied into uh, a, a wider trends in society at large? Because people sometimes point to, say, for example, the um, Reagan presidency occurring at, at a similar time to, you know, there are all these sort of like much more bombastic Hollywood uh, films that have, you know, uh, got uh, figures which um, some have projected, you know, sort of like the image of mm -hmm. Reagan onto. And uh, similarly, the, in, in, in Britain, um, the rise of Tony Blair coinciding with Cool Britannia and the seeming fusing of the two in people's mind. I mean, how linked do you think political culture is, is to, to pop culture and, and to wider societal shifts in particular directions? No, I definitely think it's connected, though. I don't know if it's as direct as people think. Like, mm. yes, Hollywood in the 1980s had these big, bombastic films, but I don't think that was because they wanted to embody Reagan because most mm. of Hollywood hated Reagan. Well, yeah. So I think that was just more of a cultural... They were, they were sort of like embodying more of a wider cultural change at the time. I can't say to what the entertainment industry in the UK is like in its relationship with various political factions, but I know in the US, our entertainment industry is typically not favorable to the political right. Mm -hmm. And so they weren't, they weren't, they, they weren't trying to boost Reagan except for mm -hmm. maybe like Red Dawn. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, in, in terms of the, the differences between um, the UK and the US, what do you think um, there is in, in terms of the way that Americans view British politics and the amount of interest that they generally have in it? Now, people in Britain are obviously um, perhaps more interested in, in US politics than um, vice versa, simply because of the state of, of mm -hmm. America. But do you think that there is some sort of scintilla of interest and, and perhaps a historic scintilla of interest in mm. what happened or is happening politically in Britain in the US. Yeah, so I know there have been some schools of mostly political history, political historical thought that think like, oh, like keep an eye on Britain because they're kind of like a canary in the coal mine of what might be <laughs> happening to America in a decade mm. or two. And so whatever they're going through will eventually go through as well. I can't speak to that as certainty, but it's a it's a popular thought among certain political circles in the U.S. And as to how much interest they have in general in the British politics, it's 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 only relevant when we can connect it directly to our own. You know, Boris Johnson mm -hmm. being connected to Donald Trump, Brexit being connected to Donald Trump, all mm -hmm. that stuff. When it's something like that, I think it can be connected but it's mostly almost like basically british politics in the united states almost gets viewed viewed more in a culture war sense than it mm. is like an actual policy sense it's like yeah. now we don't know what they're actually doing over there but as as an american looking at there i'm just kind of shocked it's like all the things that like say in the u.s that gets valued by certain political parties like the, the democratic party is very of course uh concerned with like representation and mm. saying oh we need x number of people from these various demographics or identity groups. But in the UK, I don't know if that's a, a thing in the UK, but it's like the fact that the UK has had only two female, has had two female prime ministers and both of them from, were from the Conservative Party. Mm. 
and they might have and they might just have their first non-white prime minister hmm. and it's in the conservative party it's just from the american perspective this just seems unusual or odd <laughs> yeah no I, th I, th I think it is it's an interesting um point to make and i think the thing is is that from a british perspective in terms of uh diversity that is something that definitely that the the opposition the the labor party the equivalent to the democrats certainly mm -hmm. is concerned with but what's interesting about that i think is that it that there is certainly uh, a sense that the labor party has perhaps more of a um not not quite as focused on diversity as perhaps the the democrats mm -hmm. are and, that, and that's why we haven't seen um uh, a woman leading the uh labor party and um we've only had um one um member of a, a, an ethnic minority leading the labor party so it's it's um something that I, I think is interesting to to see from from that perspective because it's not something that i would ever um have considered before but i think it's it, it's interesting as well just to think about um you know the the sort of labels that are uh, um, utilized in politics and I know you've done a video mm -hmm. um, on it um, you know conservative yeah. progressive socialist all that kind of thing mm -hmm. how applicable do you think these terms are in, in terms of the same meaning across borders because I think if you look at the way in, in American politics say someone who is described as a, a progressive or a centrist um, is in, in, in regards to their policies, if they were in the UK, they might not have the same label. Um, so, I mean, how widespread do you think those definitions are, or, or do you think they're interchangeable between different nations? I think they, I think at least among English speaking countries, they might be coming more interchangeable. I can't, I'm not uh, as, as uh, abreast of my knowledge of uh, like say, New Zealand or Australia mm -hmm. politics, slightly more Canadian, most because JJ McCullough makes us, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we hear from him on a regular mm -hmm. basis about it. And so I definitely think we are seeing sort of, sort of a coal, a, uh, sort of a unifying of like English speaking world politics, but I'm not going to even try mm -hmm. to interpret <laughs> the continent, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> Europe's politics and relations are, as I just know that we, America, because of our own very particular history, we had people actively trying to change the labels of different groups for things that would not have identified, you know, progressives became liberals, then they became progressives again. <laughs> and it's all just kind of weapon nearest to hand politics. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a quick break now to hear a trailer for the Centre Think Tank's podcast, The Centrist Podcast. Make sure to listen to the Centre Think Tank podcast, The Centrist Podcast. It's hosted each month by Will Barber-Taylor, who speaks to a mixture of academics, politicians and political activists. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, and you can find out more about Centre Think Tank with the username at Centre Think Tank. You can also visit our website, centrethinktank.co.uk, to either find the podcast itself or if you know someone who may be interested in coming on the podcast or you yourself may want to appear as a guest, then you can use the contact form on our website to find out more. One thing that I think that's also interesting in, in terms of the labels is that, I mean, I mentioned this um, uh, a little bit earlier, but of course, the main opposition party, the equivalent of the Democrats in the mm. UK, is the Labour Party. Now, of course, the 
Labour Party in the United States has not had uh, a similar <laughs> degree of success as it has had in the UK. Why do you think that is? And to what extent do you think that the view of trade unionism, which is obviously one of the um, core mm-hmm. constituents of um, Labour politics in, in both countries, has been viewed in a different way in, in, in America, perhaps in a more negative mm-hmm. way at times than it has in the UK? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think for one is that I think the fact that race is a much bigger issue in the US than mm. it seems to be in the UK, I think is, is one reason why it's the fact that the United States has never had a formal aristocracy. You know, we don't have mm. a house of lords. We don't have people who with hereditary titles here. Mm. And I think that is a big reason as to why class has never been as big of an issue. And also mm. I think just the fact that Perceptions on this may change, but ultimately the United States today is still one of the easiest countries to like rise in terms of like social or economic class. It is like, it is far easier for a person like, like, like a, like like a poor person born in Mexico has a better chance of becoming rich in America than they do in Mexico. Mm. That is like sort of a statistical thing. And that's just, so I guess a way that one professor I had in college referred to it as is that in America, race lines tend to be a lot more firmer, but class lines are a lot more permeable, whereas mm-hmm. elsewhere it tends to be race is more permeable, but class is more class lines are more hardened. Mm-hmm. But at least that's coming from this American perspective. Uh-huh. Yeah. No, I, th- I, th- I, th- I think that's interesting because certainly I think that that's, um, you know, an, an issue in the UK in, t- in terms of the, the class structure. And you me- mentioned the House of um, Lords there, which obviously in terms of it being a, 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 an unelected um, mm-hmm. upper chamber is obviously distinct from upper chambers in, 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 in the West, in the rest of the world. Um, one thing that I find interesting looking at your videos and, and, and looking at um, American politics in general is the um, ability of um, politicians to be able to make speeches that echo um, around the world. What do you think is the place of oratory and of speech making Mm. in American politics and American history? I mean, obviously it's a very Mm -hmm. important thing, um, you know, in in, in politics in general around the world, Mm -hmm. but it seems to be that speeches made by American politicians in particular are remembered more than speeches made by other um, politicians in other countries. Hmm. Well, I can definitely say that for uh, American audiences, that's definitely the case. I can't speak for in the UK if you mm-hmm. guys have speeches everyone knows lines from, but mm-hmm. I think it's because, well, this is mostly me speaking off the top of my head here because I haven't, I don't know why the speeches tend to get remembered very well, but I think the fact that like, one of America's founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, is just a big philosophical soliloquy. You know, mm-hmm. we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. You know, it's it's this long line that speaks very that's very evocative of the of America at like its best ideals, mm-hmm. and I think that's made sort of oratory, in a sense, important 
important in the American conception of itself, and especially how many times you see politicians trying to echo that same sentiment. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's, it's interesting, um, you mentioned the Constitution there, because one of the things that has um, been evident in um, recent discussion about comparisons between um, the UK uh, and the US is uh, comparisons for particular um, instances uh, happening. So, for example, the forced mass resignations, which have eventually led to um, Boris Johnson mm-hmm. having to resign as prime minister, um, been compared with um, the uh, uh, assault on um, the capital on, on, on January 6th mm-hmm. in terms of that it's interesting how the differences in structure and the differences in um, constitution and, and a codified constitution versus a, a non-codified constitution produce sometimes different outcomes in, in, in countries. How important do you think as a, a, a document having a constitution is for a country in terms of the way it um, evolves politically? Uh, it, it evolves politically, particularly in, in times of crisis, mm-hmm. because the Constitution, as you say, is a document that so many Americans can recite from memory. It's been invoked in, in, in some of America's greatest crises. Do, do you think that that plays um, a, a particularly important role in framing the way that politics is discussed as versus a country like the UK that doesn't have a, a codified constitution? See. I would say I think it used to play a much bigger role than it does currently. But I'd say like over the last half century to a century, America has been trying to create kind of trying to hobble together its own almost like parliamentary style system without the actual constitutional guardrails of it. Mm. Like, like, uh, for example, in the U.S., much law and regulations today isn't written by Congress. It's written by the executive branches, various agencies. A president Mm. gets into office. And then they can tell their agencies, okay, I want to change this X regulation, just go through whatever the procedure is, and that procedure doesn't have to involve Congress. Almost in a way of trying to recreate this idea of, well, just elect this party, elect this prime minister, and they can do whatever policies they want so long as they don't get their party to revolt against them. Mm -hmm. It's this idea of trying, you know, and we hear this in, we've heard this in elections as well, during the prime, like during the uh, primary, the Democratic primaries in 2020, you hear these politicians running for the Democratic nomination saying, oh, on day one, I'm going to go after guns or day one, I'm going to go after the oil industry or day one, et cetera, et cetera, as if they're a prime minister who can just make things happen day one by simply having controlling the office. Mm -hmm. And so we've been trying to recreate a parliamentary system without the guardrails that also accompany it. Because like, like, of course, obviously, during a lot of Trump's worst moments, mm-hmm. it was like there were thoughts of people saying, oh, oh, maybe I should resign. But a lot of them didn't end up resigning from their positions or in the cabinet and the administration. And I think a lot of them, a lot of them thought that didn't do that because, well, would it change anything? Because like they're thinking like, well, if I leave, I just know for a fact that the president is just going to replace me with somebody who is more loyal and more of a yes man. Mm-hmm. So if I leave. There will be even less constraints on his power. And if I leave, there's no obligation for him to leave. There's no obligation for the president to resign if I resign. Whereas in the British system, there's not, I don't think there is a uh, legal obligation, but there's definitely a lot more political pressure that if your entire cabinet resigns, the prime minister is looking pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's fascinating that the, um, the, the, the inference you make, the suggestion that you make in terms of American politicians almost wanting a more 
parliamentary um, system, because one of the things that um, a lot of politicians, particularly those leading the country, leading the Conservative Party and being prime minister, have been criticised for, has been attempting to be more presidential, to, <laughs> uh, to, to attempt to take on some of the um, flares of office that are, are more usually mm -hmm. associated with the the president of the, mm -hmm. of the United States. I mean, what, what do you think that that says about the, the different um, political consciousnesses of, of, of our two countries? Well, I think in part, of course, it's just a, the grass is always greener kind of effect. You know, we <laughs> like this sense there's so much deadlock in Congress. There's this idea of, oh, if only we could just, if only we could just have one election and then that person can do whatever they wanted for however many years, mm -hmm. it would be preferable. And I think that is, at least I can definitely say that's from the American perspective. It's just that with, with congressional deadlock, it just seems nicer to just have a elect a leader and they just do it. And that's a, that's a big thing with like a lot of members of Congress, you know, they, they vote mem it's like they've given the executive branch so much power over the years, partly due to them not wanting to take hard decisions. Like in the 1950s, President Eisenhower, at least yeah, during the Eisenhower administration here in the U.S., Congress gave the executive branch the power to change tariff rates on its own without having to ask Congress. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, the president can use lowering tariffs in various negotiations with other, other countries. And now you as a politician don't have to take the hard vote on lowering tariffs for a good that's produced in your district. It's like, I'm sorry, I didn't lower the tariffs. The president did that. Uh -huh. Well, it, it's fascinating to to um, to think of that comparison and to, and to and, and to see that comparison. Certainly, one that I don't think um, many uh, people in Britain would have necessarily heard of or, or necessarily um, thought of. Thank you um, for coming on the podcast, Grant. But I do mm -hmm. have one final question for mm -hmm. you. Yeah. Now we've we've discussed um, politics a great deal. We've discussed history a great deal. And of course, your YouTube channel um, is very successful and you discuss all sorts of, of different political figures and different subjects. But if you could make a video with any figure, a contribution from any figure from uh, history, whether it would be them giving their insight on the particular topic you're discussing or um, appearing in the video um, with you making some sort of voice uh, appearance, which historical figure would you most like to do a video collaboration with? Hmm. One of two at the very moment that I'm thinking of. Either Franklin Delano Roosevelt mm -hmm. or Herbert Hoover, most because there's one particular question I want to ask them. <laughs> I want to... Yeah. Go on. What would that I, question I, be? Yes, I want to know how much did they know about the Holodomor going on? Because it was happening under both of their watches and neither of them said a damn thing. Herbert Hoover doesn't mention a famine going on in Ukraine during his presidency in any of his memoirs. I just, and I know for a fact that he was interested in Eastern Europe. He helped yeah. fight a previous famine there. So I'm like, this was going on. I've read the communiques from your diplomats in Eastern Europe, sending them back to the Secretary of State's office. I know for a fact you guys knew what was going on. Yeah. So I wanted to know. What what did they know? Were people keeping things secret from them? Because that's mm. that's the it's kind of the, the smoking gun from one of my videos is that I suspected that FDR knew about it, but decided to either not believe his advisors or to simply ignore a 
you know, a, a genocide going mm -hmm. on for political purposes, in yeah. which case, and if he's, if he was willing to ignore that genocide, then not bringing up the Holocaust when it was happening doesn't seem as crazy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, that's a, a, mm. a fascinating question and obviously one that um, it would be incredibly interesting to get their responses to um, if we could. But thank you once again um, for coming on the podcast, Grant. If people want to find out more about you, about your YouTube channel, uh, where should they go to, to find out more? Well, they should go to the YouTube channel itself, uh, youtube.com slash Grant Hurst, or just look up Casual Historian on YouTube. Fantastic. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Dude, we are going to energize the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. The independence case is a powerful one. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order!